God is with us. God is for us. God, your sovereign name we bless. Boy, if we could just, just get those words down in our hearts and minds and worked out in our lives, everything would be great. Really, God, if we really knew who he is, is with us. Wow, God himself is with us. God is with us to condemn and judge. No, he's for us. He is for us. God is with us and for us. What an amazing thing to be singing. Really simple words, but couldn't be more important or more profound. That's really what the message is about this morning. Genesis 35 is where we are. I'm so grateful for this series through Genesis. It's been really good for my soul. I love the discipline of going through books of the Bible like we do at Grace because it makes sure we treat the Bible as it's all the whole counsel of God's Word. Um, this, this idea that we've just got verses and books and passages that we focus on and the exclusion of others actually causes huge, huge problems in the church. We get a warped, uh, disintegrated view of who God is. We get a wrong view of ourselves. Everything goes awry when we don't have the whole Bible driving us, and I love how we do that. Actually, I, in the past few months, I've had an opportunity to preach twice where I can completely choose whatever I wanted to preach at other places. And I picked a sermon I had to preach here and wouldn't have chosen otherwise about Lot and his daughters in a cave getting him drunk and getting pregnant. It's just a horrible, pa- who would pick that passage to preach on? That, that's definitely one of those passages that never gets asked to the prom, right? So just, it, it's, and nobody likes that passage, right? So, um, I'm, I preached on it because it was an incredible blessing to me and I think to our flock and I'm now hopeful to other flocks that I'm able to preach to. Yeah, I chose those passages and one of them was at Hume Lake to, to everybody up there, believe it or not. Part of my role at Grace is to go and preach and teach and pastor other places and I'm so grateful that our elders and all of you by extension give me that opportunity. Every time I go to preach somewhere, I, I thank them for welcoming me, and I say I come representing Grace Evangelical Free Church of La Mirada with their prayers and blessing, and the saints there greet you. So I, I represent our church as I go and do this. In the past five weeks, I was just thinking this morning, in the past five weeks, this is thir- Sermon 31 that I've preached in the past five weeks. Yeah, and I'm so grateful for, for prayer and the Spirit's work because I, I love it and I'm, I'm, don't, you can feel sorry for me if you want, but I'm not tired and, um, and I love the opportunity to do it. I preached at family camp at Forest Home, preached to high school kids at, Ponderosa, at uh, Hume Lake and then adults at Hume Lake and then just got back from Hume, San Diego, preached twice in between here during all that, hung out at Adventure Week and uh, this Wednesday will be, what, 32, when I preach up near Fresno at a great evangelistic um, r- rally. A church is organized up there. They've been doing it for years in the summer. And it's amazing to see God work. I, I say, man, should I do this? And High school kids. And, and sure enough, I showed up in San Diego, which was so cool. All these youth groups. And, and this, I mean, if you had to get a, 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 or, a San Diego County youth minister stereotype in your head from central casting this was this guy he comes up to me at the end of the week that i just finished in san diego and he said man when i saw 
your picture and the information about this week, I was like, oh, man. <sighs> he said, who's this old dude, man? This isn't good. And, and uh, he said, but you did good, man. You did good. I said, thanks. Appreciate that. Um, and I walked away. Because part, I'm at the point in my life now where I'm like, I know, I know. I know, I feel the same way. I'm with, I, I, I feel you, man, I feel you. Who's this old dude talking to young people? I'm completely irrelevant, I guess. Um, but I walked away, and I was glad I thought of it after. I, I thought, wow, it's really good I'm an old dude because like, in that moment, I didn't say one of the 15 things I thought of saying to him. <laughs> Which, I mean, it, you get to the point where you don't have that much to prove anymore, and you can just let that go, right? And... So it was good. It ended up being really good. But it's amazing how God works when his word is preached. It's, it's really astounding to see over and over again. You preach the gospel and people respond. The Thursday night after we preached on the resurrection, we preached the whole Bible. We tried to preach Genesis to Revelation at the high school camps at, at Hume this summer. It was phenomenal, the theme. I just loved it. And preach on the resurrection, which is a vital part of the gospel that often gets left out, and ask kids to respond, and dozens and dozens of kids trusted Christ for the first time, and probably three times that this said they wanted to come home from a prodigal life, and it was just amazing, and then they had him for the first time go over in Memorial Chapel, which is next to the big chapel where we meet, and it was almost full with these kids and counselors and youth workers praying with them, crying with them, rejoicing, preaching. It was just, I just sat in the sound booth in back and just cried and prayed. And I, I was praying for and completely convinced that what was happening in that moment was going to have ramifications for grandchildren of these kids someday. And, and they'll trace it back to what God did in their lives that night. And so... It was just, just a beautiful thing to be a part of. God continues to work in good ways. I preached to the older folks the, the following week on finishing well from the life of King Saul. And again, I think God really used it. So I'm just grateful for the grace-extending ministry I'm able to have here at Grace. Thank you for being part of that and the support and prayer you give for all of that. Well, like I said, I love this Genesis series we're in. And we're actually coming to the end of this current section we're in as we're going through Genesis, and we've been looking at the life of uh, Isaac and Jacob and Esau and all the things going on in their lives. We've got a loaded chapter. There is so much amazing stuff. There are about 15, 16, I counted actually, things that could be standalone sermons from chapter 35 that we'll be looking at. So would you open your Bibles to Genesis 35, and we'll look at really a concluding section. It makes sense to break the section here. We'll have a reflection service next week on what we've been learning through Genesis. And so please be thinking about what you could share next week in the reflection service in an edifying way in light of what God's been teaching you in all of this. But Genesis 35 really in many ways is a transition chapter between the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. And then we shift basically for the rest of Genesis to the life of Joseph. It's a very well-known story of Joseph's life. And so uh, chapter 35 
really brings Jacob's life now to a conclusion after so much we've seen and learned about. But before we dive into chapter 35, would you keep your finger right there? And I think it's really important to set the stage with what's happening in chapter 35 with a few verses that have come before in Jacob's life. Vital verses that set the stage for what's happening in 35. So uh, let's go to God's word. Let me pray. Lord, help us now as we go to your word. We need you. We don't just want information. We want transformation. So would you please use your word now as the spirit works to change us, our thinking, our affections, our behavior. Most of all, Lord, our trust in your unchanging character and therefore your promises. So help us now, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you keep your finger in chapter 35 and go back to Genesis 28, this is a vital moment in Jacob's life. Listen, verse 15 of Genesis 28. God speaking to Jacob. 28.15 of Genesis. Behold, I am with you. There it is. God's with us. And will keep you wherever you go. What an amazing, wonderful promise. And will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised. This is right after his dream where God affirms his ongoing activity in his life, in human history. Oh, he's God, and he is not part of creation like anything in creation, but he's not a God who's separate from creation and distant from it. He's a God who's always been working in it ever since he walked in the garden in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. He's always been a God who relates and communicates and Loves his people. And he promises this will be the situation in Jacob's life in particular. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, verse 16, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, house of God. That's what that means in Hebrew. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow. He makes a promise to God. Saying... If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. He commits to these things he's known, but now he makes a vow. He decides he's going to follow God. And the stone which I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Okay, so God says, I'll be with you. I'll provide for you. Go. Go to the promised land. He's been away from the promised land, running from Esau, and then he gets involved in this really complicated situation, finding his wife Rachel, having to marry Leah first, in this really messy situation in Laban's family. And then, years tick by, we see... Last week, this terrible situation. But what leads to that? Look at Genesis 33. 
verse 19. Actually, start at 18, 33, 18 of Genesis. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram. Now, he's, he's heading home. He's heading to the house of God. He's heading to the promised land, the land of his father Abraham. Grandfather Abraham. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, what? He bought for 100 pieces of money a piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Ole Ole Israel. What? What are you doing buying land outside the promised land? Jacob, you're heading home. What are you, what are you stopping on the way here? This is just a day's journey from Bethel. He's, he's not closing the loop here. He's not completing his vow. He's not trusting to the point where he does what he says and rests in God and goes home. And it leads to unspeakable tragedy. He's in this foreign land. He's not home yet. A day's journey from the house of God. It's a good location for trade. There's good practical reason to settle here. It's a really good crossroads here. Like usual, there's a really good reason to almost obey God. Every time. Every time. That's one of the stunning things I've been getting from Genesis. I become much more empathetic to these fools who almost obey God or don't obey him at all because I keep seeing over and over again as I put myself in their place how much good reason there is from a practical standpoint, from a human level, to do it their way instead of God's way. You can always come up with good reasons to disobey God, especially with the internet. You can always find somebody to argue your case for you that God doesn't quite know what he's doing completely and clearly in his word. And so he's not home. And you want to say, Jacob, what are you doing? Here you go again. Here you go again. You seem to have it so right in so many ways. You wrestle with God. He makes these promises to you. You step out in faith. You worship him. And then you almost obey him. What are you doing? What are you doing? A day's journey from Bethel. It's been 30 years now, almost, on the way home. Twice as long as some of you have been alive who are sitting here. 30 years, decades, he's been on his way. What are you waiting for, Jacob? Get home. And now we pick up our story in chapter 35. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. I read that and I see the grace of God just oozing, oozing. Since I became a dad, I've realized the difference between hearing and listening really well. And one of the most, it's so frustrating to say things over and over again and not get the response you're after. What he doesn't say, though, is so important. He says, arise, like I told you before. He doesn't say that. 
Arise, dummy. No. He just says, go to Bethel and dwell there. Like I told you already. No. Not like me. Make an altar there to God and who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Remember? He's so incredibly patient and gracious with this call to do what he's already called him to do, told him to do, given him confidence to do, given him visions, met with him and talked with him. Amazing revelation of who he is, but he's sluggish in getting home. Verse 2. Watch, more grace. You won't believe it. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel that I may make there an altar to God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Not sure exactly why he buried them under a tree. Probably as a gesture of, we're not coming back. We're not putting them on a shelf or in a closet, getting ready for later on if we get desperate again. No, he buries them in this gesture of, we're done with them. But what are they doing there in the first place? Right? This is the man of God. This is God's main agent of continuing his promises. And he's got idols in his household. Again, God is so patient, so amazingly gracious. It's just amazing. And he says, get rid of him. But let's, let's realize this is good. He's not tolerating this anymore. One of his biggest problems, Jacob, has been passivity when he needs to act. Not seeming to take charge like a husband and father should for righteousness and protection and provision and goodness. And he's doing it. At least he's doing it. And I think God is saying, okay, here we go. And he's cleansing his family for the journey home to the house of God. We need to be cleansed. Notice they cleanse externally, their clothing, their earrings, but internally is most important. They need a cleansing from this idolatry, this false worship. More grace, 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 grace. Verse 5 more grace and as they journeyed a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so they did not pursue the sons of Bethel uh, of Jacob now if you if you think about what's been happening he's made a lot of enemies with these neighbors the Shechemites especially and it is a dangerous thing to begin a journey with all of these enemies all around you and God protects him with a supernatural terror he puts in the hearts of the enemies around him so they leave him alone more grace more provision more power from God showing who he is more grace providing safe passage verse 6 and Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is the land in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel. This is interesting. It's Bethel, house of God, Beit El, house of God. But he calls it here God, the house of God. 
Um, this, this place, he emphasizes who's here, not where we are. Now, places can be sacred, and we probably in our society need far more of a greater appreciation for the sacredness of place. But here he makes sure we realize that what's important about a place is ultimately not the place, but who's in that place. And God's in this place. This is El Bethel, uh, the God of the house of God. Because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. He met here before. And so we have this wonderful fulfillment of the promises. We have Jacob affirming who God is. Listen to this beautiful affirmation of who he is in verse 3. Let us arise and go up to the house of God that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. What a beautiful way to think about God. Beautiful way to ground your life in faithfulness in who God is. He's always been with me. Every step of the way, he's thinking, even in my sin, even when I took matters into my own hands, even the days when I faltered and thought I knew better than God and didn't fulfill my obligations to my wife or daughter or family or to mostly God himself. And so he's really gaining momentum here. In keeping his vow, he heads home, he worships God, and then tragedy strikes. Verse 8. And Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. And she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth, which is Oak of Weeping. Now, this Deborah, we don't know this, this person. Um, who is she? Well, she's... Rebecca's nurse. It was very common and still is in many parts of the world and even more in the south maybe in, in this country that there is kind of a, a woman who becomes part of your family who takes care of a lot of the daily detail needs of the kids and in many ways can become closer than the actual birth mother. And it certainly seems the sorrow here indicates that this nurse of Rebecca, who was a mother figure to Jacob, dies. Enough to call that place Oak of Weeping. She's buried. So we've got a funeral. More of that to come. Verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. We've heard this before, haven't we? When God wrestles with, when Jacob wrestles with God, he gives him this name change. But here he's reiterating it, emphasizing what he's already done, the covenant he's made with him, and graciously restates this name change from deceiver to the one who wrestles with God. God loved that Jacob knew his desperate need for God and wrestled with him, and he changes his name, and it becomes the name of the nation of Israel through this. No more shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai, God Almighty, the God who is able to do all his holy will. There is nothing God determines to do he is unable to do. 
He affirms this vital attribute. Nothing is outside of my power, Jacob. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. Sound familiar? It is, right out of Genesis 3. And sounds a lot like the promise he makes to Abraham. I will multiply your lineage. I will provide for you. I will make you fruitful. I will make you the father of many nations. And then he adds to it here like he hasn't before for Jacob. A nation and company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob has set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel, the house of God. God is at work. Jacob is trusting the promises of God and ultimately the character of God like never before. And once again, we have tragedy. Verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel, where they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-One, but his father called him Benjamin. He changed his name to son of my right hand, son of my favored one in position, instead of son of my sorrow, as Rachel had wanted to call him. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. So we've got a mother figure of Jacob's die. We've got his beloved wife, Rachel, die. And in some ways, it gets even worse. Verse 22. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben, his firstborn son from Leah, went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Betrayal. Great betrayal from his firstborn son. Oh, I'm sure there's some sort of sexual immorality involved here, but it seems in this context way more is Reuben getting an advantage socially and culturally in the family. If, if he can defile his father's concubine, he starts to take over in the family. That's his effort. He, he realizes things are shifting here and he's one of the un, less favored sons as one of Leah's sons. And Benjamin has just been born and he's going to be the favored son. And Joseph certainly is going to be this favored son and so he's jockeying for position in the family here. It's a power play as much as anything, just like we saw in David's family as a result of the polygamy and the, the, the terrible conflict within his family that sin perpetuated over and over again. 
It's amazing how briefly it talks about it. You know, people will often say, Bible's worse than any X-rated movie ever. Now, somebody asked me just a couple weeks ago, how do you, you know, you homeschool some of your kids and have school homeschooled all of them and you got this church community. How do you keep your kids from being sheltered? Well, I said, well, um, we read the Bible. <laughs> But, you know, it is interesting to me. People try to justify watching graphic movies and things by what the Bible says. It's, it's really amazing how often the Bible is so understated in these things. It doesn't give all this detail and salacious information and trying to whet your appetite for something evil. No, it often will just so understated. And here it's starkly understated. We don't even get here Jacob's response. Now, we get his response later when he's doling out blessings and he says, Reuben, you betrayed me. And he calls him out for it. But here he doesn't respond at all. And it's very understated. Very direct, but, but understated. But it's a terrible thing. A terrible thing. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. Now we get into this list, setting the stage for Joseph's ministry to take over the focal point. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpha, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kareth Arba, that is Hebron where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last. And he died. And was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Ah, it seems the enemies were able to bury the hatchet when they buried their dad. Wow. Can you believe all the stuff going on in this family? I mean, this makes a reality show seem like nothing. There is so much going on here. Here's the point. God is gracious and God is powerful even in the midst of tragedy and sin and deep sadness. God's character and God's promises need to fortify us Build us up, strengthen us, give us confidence and hope and joy even in the midst of great sorrow and sadness. Who God is and his promises become the fortification for Jacob's soul here and need to for us as well. At the end of his life in chapter 48 of Genesis, he goes back to what God says about himself in verse 11. I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. And listen to what he says to Joseph, his son who he thought was dead, but he realized is now alive. Listen to what he says in chapter 48, verses 3 and 4. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty, El Shaddai appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So Jacob is now clinging as an old man at the end of his life to God's promises. These promises based on God's character become the defining reality for Jacob. God is with us and God is for us. And we should hear the words of Jesus now when he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'll be there with you and for you throughout your days. Lig Duncan said this chapter is summarized by three communions and three funerals. 
three amazing experiences with God, three amazing drawing close to God moments, intimacy with God moments, deep understanding of who God is, and woven through it all is great tragedy. Do you realize what fell upon Jacob in this chapter in the midst of the height of his spiritual experience with God? This chapter is really the defining moment for Jacob. This is the Abraham willing to offer Isaac moment for him. He's home. He's in the house of God. His faith has momentum. His confidence in God has momentum. His obedience has momentum. And over and over again, tragedy keeps striking. Sadness keeps invading his life. And he weeps in the midst of great progress spiritually. In the midst of three communions or three funerals. And there's this transition in this chapter of grace and communion with God and sorrow. And the point of this chapter for us has got to be we must trust God even if the timing and the circumstances of how he fulfills his promises is very difficult and not what we expect. Do you see the grace of God all over this? Don't lose sight of it. It's so easy when you lose a mother figure to death or you lose a wife who you love to death or a son betrays you and breaks your heart in that sort of way to shake your fist at God instead of seeing in the midst of all of this amazing grace. Did you see the grace as we went through it? God calls him when he's got all kinds of faithlessness going on in his life. He calls him. He's 20 years late getting to the promised land, and God calls him so graciously. And God apparently is having patience all this time with idols in his household. To commune with God, you need a clean house. Jacob takes more responsibility than ever we've seen really before in this moment in response to God's provision here. He needs to get rid of the idols that shouldn't have been in their first place, but now that he realizes they need to go, he gets rid of them. Listen to 1 John 5. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Jesus says in Matthew 6, you cannot serve God and money. Colossians 3 says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. We've all got to go to war with idolatry or we can never love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every time you love God, you say no to more idols in your life. And we all have different ones. They look different in our lives. Ask God to show you what yours are and then bury them under a tree somewhere and forget about them. There's grace in God protecting Jacob as they leave, striking fear in the hearts of his enemies. There's grace in restating the covenant that harkens back to Abraham and even Adam and Eve and being fruitful and multiplying. God's gracious justification of Jacob here is undeserved mercy toward him. And what I love here is he comes and he says, remember I changed your name? I'm reminding you I changed your name. Do you remember that I promised these things to you and you made a vow that you haven't kept yet? He doesn't even include that. He says, and your name is Israel, remember? You're the one who wrestles with me. You're the one who knows how much you need me and wrestled with me. Do you remember? That's who you are. And I love this moment where he says, you're not Jacob anymore. You're not the deceiver anymore. You're not the one who takes matters into your own hands and obeys a little bit or mostly. No, you're the one who's Israel. You wrestle with me in your best moments, Jacob. You know who I am and you trust me and that's what I'm calling you to. I just love this. God won't let Jacob define himself by his past, by his track record. 
He doesn't come to him with a list of all of his failures and make sure he defines himself with that. Throwing him up in his face like we so often can do to other people who've hurt us, sinned against us. No, God, the holy God, who's always ultimately the one who has sinned against, he doesn't do that to Jacob. He comes and says, remember who you are. Remember who I made you and I'm making you. Trust me. Trust me, live up to what I have said you are and are going to be. Don't define yourself by your past, your failures, your sin. Define yourself by who I am calling you. I've given you a name, and that one's going to stick, and I'm going to make sure you get home to Bethel. And that's true of all of us. We all need to realize that God talks to his children that way. He doesn't ever define us by our past or our failures, but by his work in our lives. He is forgiving and gracious, and he calls us to move ahead with his redeeming work. It's a glorious God we serve who saves us and loves us in these ways. But I need to make sure we see that these good things going on here and in all of life are always accompanied by sorrow, by tears. This idea that follow Jesus, be faithful to God, and your life won't have tears, it won't have brokenheartedness, it won't have anguish, it won't have great sadness with sin all around is a lie. And preachers who preach that kind of gospel, come to Jesus and everything will be fine, are false teachers who are incredibly selective about the verses they use and rip them out of context. If there's anything we're learning in Genesis is God's promises involve a process that is always filled with sorrow and suffering on the way home when those tears will be wiped away once and for all. When our joy is turned to sorrow, all of these... And unless Jesus comes back, we'll be included in this description. Listen to Hebrews 11. All these died in faith, not having received what was promised, but having seen it and greeted it from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. All these, though well attested by their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had foreseen something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. They didn't receive it. They were faithful. They saw the fulfillment of their promises in their lives in the immediate, but they didn't see the ultimate fulfillment. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here in chapter 11. They had a lack of ultimate fulfillment because we realize that God's work in the lives of these Old Testament saints is leading to something greater than the fulfillment they saw in their lives. You know how Rachel says, give me a son or I will die. And she's given a son and it kills her. So important to her, all the envy, all the backbiting, all the one-upsmanship among Rachel, uh, uh, Rachel and Leah over, over these children. And she dies in the process. And then Reuben does this. It's just so ugly. You know, I know you may have a messed up family. We all do to some degree. But do you, I mean, I look at these folks and I'm thinking, wow, I'm doing all right. <laughs> Think about it. Lying, drunkenness, incest, uh, brutality, just taking advantage of each other. It's just horrible. Betraying your father, sleeping with your stepmother, basically. I mean, it's just, it's just horrible what's going on. 
And we can all relate. And we need to realize that God does things in ways that are so different than we would often think. I love it when life is efficient and orderly and goes the way I plan it. I get up with a list of 20 things I want to do that day and I want to go right through the list. And there are days I don't get through the first thing. And that's frustrating. I love to travel efficiently. I'm I'm quite good at it, I would say. And it so often doesn't go that way. And the more people you add to the van, the less it goes that way. We were on our way to Hume a few weeks ago, and we were having the most efficient trip we've ever had, according to Dad's plan to perfection. Mom made us lunch, so we didn't even have to stop for that. We're we're just moving. I stopped at the perfect place to get gas, time-wise, price-wise. I was feeling good, and I said I said, this is the most efficient trip we've ever had to Hume. And about five minutes later, I said, where's my phone? Where's, where's my phone? Call my phone. Call my phone. And it started ringing back at the most efficient place to get gas. In the men's room. The, the nice Middle Eastern man went and got it for me when we called. And I was a half an hour down the road. And we turned around. And not only did I have to go half an hour back, there was major traffic going that way. There wasn't the way we were supposed to be going. But major traffic going that way. Now, it wouldn't have been good if one of my kids had done this, but when I do it, it's a thousand times worse. I'm like, you idiot! Now, now, so I'm sitting in traffic going the wrong way. And 104 degree Bakersfield temperatures, right? And, and what do, I'm hating this. In that moment, I need to say, Lord, who do you want to be to be in front of my family right now? And what do you want to teach me? You know, God invented geometry. Did you know that? And he knows better than any of us that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. But he so seldom takes a straight line to his goals in our lives. My life so often is like an EKG. It's, Lord, there's the goal. Just zip right to it, Lord. No, he's got more important things he's up to than just getting there the most efficient way he can. And this is so clear in the Bible. It's so clear in our lives. And especially when the EKG is a dip with the death of a loved one or the betrayal of a trusted one. The effects of sin in my life and the lives of other people, the the tragedy of life in a fallen world, it's just horrible what it can be. And where do we go? We go where Jacob goes, the God Almighty, the one who's with us and for us every day of our lives. You know, Rachel dies with tears in childbirth. And you know, Jeremiah picks up on this idea in chapter 31 and he talks about judgment and he brings hope and he says, Rachel's weeping for her children. She's weeping for her children. But take heart, the Savior's coming. And then do you know when we get to the New Testament in Matthew chapter 2, the promise is ultimately fulfilled and the Messiah who's come from this line And right after he comes, you know what happens? This evil man, Herod, decides to kill all the little firstborn boys in Israel. 
And you know what it says? This was to fulfill the scripture that says, Rachel is weeping for her children in Ramah. Isn't that amazing? Right in the midst of the light coming, we've still got the tragedy. We've still got the weeping. We still have the trials. But here's the beautiful thing. God says, as he says in chapter 11 of Hebrews, that God had something better than their faith being fulfilled in their lives, and that is it being worked out in our lives. As we become the ones who are fruitful and multiply through gospel ministry in our lives, pointing people to the Savior and God works through that proclamation and we become fruitful and multiply in the most important way possible. And this is what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being is born, born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but you will see. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Are you struggling today? Are you sorrowful today? Do you wonder if God is good and able and with you and for you? Believe it. Lord, help us to believe these precious promises based on your perfect character. Help us to be a church that clings to who you are and what you've said, what you've commanded, and lives lives of growing faithfulness. Lord, thank you for the comfort we see and the struggles these great saints went through as they sought to be faithful just like us. Help us in these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.